So I want to continue on from the passage that uh, Jen read this morning about the greatest commandment. And just to give some context, Jesus is kind of at the Temple Mount. So you can just kind of imagine yourself at the Temple while, while this is happening. Uh, so this is while he's teaching in the Temple, Jesus asked, How is it that the religion, religious scholars can say the Messiah is David's son? When we all know that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, God said to my master, sit here at my right hand until they put your enemies under, my, under your feet. David here designates the Messiah, my master. So how can the Messiah also be his son? This is an interesting question because David, uh, David was king of Israel hundreds of years back. And as the expectation in, in Israel is they're waiting for Messiah to come. And Jesus is basically saying, how can the Messiah, kind of the leader, also be David's son? Doesn't make a lot of sense. The large crowd was delighted with what they heard. He continued teaching, watch out for the religion scholars. They love to walk around in gowns, preening in the radiance of public flattery, basking in prominent positions, sitting at the head of the table at every church function. And all the time, they're exploiting the weak and helpless. The longer their prayers, the worse they get but they'll pay for it in the end. So Jesus starts with this idea that the Messiah will one day be God's son. He'll be Lord. There's this kind of, he's hinting at some really deep theology that I don't quite understand. And then he moves on into critiquing the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers and the priests in the temple. Now he's already disparaged the temple. Right in a couple, like a couple paragraphs later, he's going to say that the temple's going to be torn down. So there's this weird kind of tension that Jesus is having with the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all the rest. And at this point in Mark's gospel, we know, I mean, if you're reading through it, you know that there's already this deep animus that Jesus has towards the religious leaders and vice versa. There's multiple times the Pharisees, the scribes, um, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus. If they had a chance, they would. There's lots of opportunities that they, they, they thought if we could just find the right moment, we'd arrest them right now. But they couldn't because the crowd was there. This wasn't their right time and they were kind of cowards. And so here Jesus is in the temple. Now this is Herod's temple. So the temple mount is still there today. One day I would love to go see it. It's an enormous platform. Huge, huge, huge building. And remember way back Solomon built the temple. It was destroyed. The Israelites were sent into exile. The temple was, was flattened. When they returned to Israel, like 600 years before this, they rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't very, very good the second time around. And so when Herod the Great came in, he was a great builder, and he built this enormous temple. On, on top of the temple that's already there, he extended it. It's, it's beautiful, gold, elaborate, massive. And the court of the Gentiles was absolutely huge. You could fit hundreds of thousands of people in the court of the Gentiles. And people were coming in daily, back and forth. And at this point in Mark's gospel, it's Passover. So the city is just brimming with people, just popping out of the seams, people everywhere. Pilgrims from all around the Mediterranean coming to celebrate Passover. And Jesus isn't in the court of the Gentiles. It's called the court of the Gentiles because even Jews were permitted not, they could go in there. If you're a Gentile, you can go into that temple area. But then inside the court of the Gentiles is the, the temple proper. 
And the temple proper is kind of divided into two halves. And one, the first half is called the court of women. And the second is where the sacrifices are made. And then there's the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to have been. And the high priest goes in once a year to, to atone for the sins of Israel. But the court of the women is where the women could go. But they couldn't go beyond. And Jesus is sitting in the court of women. This is where he's having this conversation. So you can imagine the pillars and the gold and the, the, the priests and the scribes walking around and the people just coming in and out and the men coming in and out of the actual temple area where the sacrifices would have been made for their families. And they would have been bringing their animals and there'd be just all this hustle and bustle. And this is where Jesus is talking. And he's actually sitting. This is those things about Mark that I just, if you read over too quick, you miss. He's sitting. People are around him in the court of women. Interesting. And he's watching as he's talking. He's, he's observant. He's, he's got his eye on the people coming around. And he's watching the religious leaders. And he's saying, look at them. Beware of them. Now, this is an interesting juxtaposition for Jesus talking about himself kind of third person that the, he's inferring that he's the Messiah, that he's David's son. He comes from the line of David. He's inferring all of this, that he's going, that David's son means you're the rightful king, but he's also a Lord. He's inferring all this while he's in David's son Solomon's old temple. And he's already cleansed the temple. Like days before in this story, he came in and he made a whip and he threw the tables over and he, he cleared it out. He said, you've made this a, a den of robbers. And he actually stopped for that time. He actually stopped sacrifices from happening. He, he illegitimized the temple function. This is Jesus. He's in God's house. He's saying, this is redundant. It's not necessary. And then a couple paragraphs later, he's going to say, this is all going to come crashing down. It's going to be destroyed. Spiritually, physically, it's going to be wrecked. And while he's sitting, watching, he's critiquing, scathing critiques of the people who operate this temple. So it would be like Ross at the back. Can you wave Ross? And those who are watching, you can't see Ross, but he's at the back waving. And it'd be like a Ross at the back saying to his, his, his followers, people around him, you see this building? It's going gonna, it's gonna to burn up. And you see the guy at the front? Me? Hypocrite. Don't even listen to him. It, it, it'd just be like, this is, well, then why are you here? Why are you sitting here? It's interesting. Jesus is there critiquing this thing, and he's watching, and he lays a really scathing critique of the religious establishment, those who are actually in charge of running this thing. That their, their lineage would have come all the way back from the time of Jacob. The, the tribe of Levi is in, in charge of running this machine, this giant temple. He says, these guys, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, a lot of these guys you gotta watch out for because they actually fleece widows. They rob from them. They look out for themselves. When there's a, a place where you could be, uh, they're going to rise to the top. And they're going to make sure that everybody sees what they're doing. 
and they're going to talk a good game, and they're going to talk like they, sh they, they should, but they're actually really awful. And they had this practice where, where uh, he mentions what Jesus mentions widows because widows and, widows and, and orphan children and fatherless children are like the most vulnerable in Jewish society. They didn't have people that took out for them. They, didn't have, they weren't part of a lineage. They didn't have protection. And so when the priests and Sadducees kind of came in to mediate their estate, oftentimes they would like literally rob from the estate of the widows. It's like the most despicable thing that you could do. These are the people in charge of this temple. And as Jesus is sitting there, he's watching and he says, look, over there, there's 13 large offering bowls, things. I don't know. I tried to find a picture of what they look like, but they're long gone. But they're like metal offering plates, but not like our offering plates. They would probably be bigger. And they were supposedly like to look in the shape of a trumpet. And people would come to the temple and give their offering. And there's kind of a mandatory temple tax that men and families were supposed to give. And then there was offering. You could give more. You could give over and above if you, if you wanted to. And so here Jesus is saying, look at these guys lining up. And I'm not, uh, I'm not usually one for <coughs> illustrations, but just the sound. Don't you imagine the sound of these pompous elite men coming in to the temple with their money bags at their side, arrogantly walking towards these trumpet bowls and <laughs> dropping in their coin. That was really loud. <laughs> Let's do it again. Because they're, they're metal, you could hear how much over a coin they were giving. They gave way beyond what they're supposed to, way beyond the tax. And the clang and the clunk and the, the, the just reverberated through the halls and the, the, the corridors of the, of the temple. And everybody would look and say, wow, look at these guys. Look how much they're giving. Unbelievable. There's actually, one scholar said there's actually like a, a tourist element to this. People actually come to watch how much money people would give. Who's ever been to like a, I, I, yeah. I've been to some weird church functions where the invitation is like come up and physically show how much money you're giving. You didn't know the number, but it's like, it's just a weird thing, right? This like, there's almost like a bragger thing going on. And that's what's happening. Jesus is saying, but these guys giving all this money, making their gifts known, they're actually kind of the worst. And then Jesus says, look, now I can imagine that Jesus has been watching this person for quite a while. That I don't think this person just kind of came into view. I think he had his eyes on this person. Because this person kind of walked over very quietly, not near the crowd of people, not near this touristy show. They walked over, and they put something in that trumpet metal collection thing, and it didn't make a sound. But Jesus knew that person, that widow, she gave two measly coin. Two measly, I think they were copper coins. It was the lowest denomination of money exchanged in the area. You couldn't give less. Two 
So that means she had two. And Jesus says, look, she gave two measly coins. And guess what? Jesus says, it's all that she had. She gave everything that she had. If she had two, that means she could have only given one, but she didn't. She's in the court of women giving not a temple tax because she's not a man. This is an offering. This is a free will offering. She didn't have to give anything. She had two coins. She didn't have to give either of them. She could have kept one, but she gave both out of pure generosity. Which meant, Jesus says, she gave her livelihood. One, one scholar says this is, this is about the equivalent of about 16 minutes worth of work for, for a grown man in that time. So like 50 cents. It had been just enough for a meal. So this woman walks in, a widow, one of the most vulnerable people in this society. No protector, no, her no heritage, no lineage, no one looking out for her, no man taking care of her. We assume she's alone, so maybe she didn't have any, any sons or any family. We don't know. I always imagine that she's old. She's probably not very well dressed. She doesn't have the robes and the gowns that these religious people do. She's not there for show. She's not there because she has to be. She's not there because she's obligated to be. She walks up, and with everything that she has, she gives literally everything away and drops it silently into that trumpet. And Jesus says, that woman, that person, gave way more than those men over there. Now, I'm struck by this story because of this, like, all these juxtapositions of tension. What, like, and I've been, I was just kind of like trying to sit with this, like, why, why did she do that? Why, why did she give everything? And what does Jesus care anyway? Jesus is like, this thing is, you know, I'm not going to speak for Jesus, but I'm going to interpret what he says. This whole thing is kind of rot. This thing is not working. This temple thing, the sacrificial thing, it's not working, hasn't worked for a long time. It's really corrupt. It's going to come crashing down. It's not good. I actually don't really even care so much about this. It's going to be destroyed. And it's going to rise up again in a new way. So don't really worry about this, Jesus says. What does he care if this woman, have anybody giving money to keep this thing going? What was she doing there and why did Jesus care? And I know like this is a kind of a popular story and it's a well-known story about generosity and, you know, giving all that you have to God and I, I, I'm, there's definitely that angle to it. You know, Jesus isn't indicting wealthy people, and he's not saying that we have to give everything that we have. I think what this woman was doing came absolutely out of a spirit of generosity because I think she had a genuine relationship with God. 
And I think she gave everything to God because she was just content to be with God. And so she wasn't worried. She wasn't worried about her next meal. She wasn't concerned how people looked at her, thought about her. And I think out of this abundance of generosity, it was really out of abundance of relationship. And Jesus says she gave everything she had. So this morning, I thought, this is Jen's idea, and I think it's a great idea. And so I piggybacked onto it. In a moment, I want to give you guys an opportunity to share with us things that God has done for you. So in classic old-school Pentecostal time, it would be like testimony time. Who's ever been to a spontaneous testimony time? Really? Only a few of you. Oh, my friends. So I grew up in this tradition where almost, almost every Sunday night, because Sunday night church, the pastor would open the floor for testimonies, and people would just stand up and say, you know, this is what God did for me, and this is what God did for me. And every, every week this would happen. You just hear, like, what had happened in people's lives that week. And sometimes you'd hear the same stories week after week after week after week from the same people. Sometimes you'd hear something totally out of left field. And it was really formative for me uh, as a child. I didn't understand really what was happening. But looking back, it was a really formative, good thing to do. And I'm glad that we did it. And absolutely, it's super uncomfortable. And absolutely, there's, there's kind of a risk. Because I don't know what you're going to say. You, you don't know what others are going to say. But that's kind of fun, too. So what I would like to do is open the floor. You can come up and take the mic. You get like 30 seconds. Just share if you want. What has God done for you? What, what the abundance of generosity in, in your heart and your mind, can you just give back to God through testimony, through offering? Or, just one sec, you can do the same with, with a, a little card. You can write something down. Maybe it's something that you actually need. Maybe it's something that you're actually kind of prayerfully working through. Maybe it's something that you haven't yet given back to God. Maybe it's something that you, you know in your heart and in your gut that God's out of relationship you want to give back to God, not out of obligation, not because you have to, not because God's demanding it of you, but you, you willingly out of the generosity, out of an abundance of relationship, you want to give that back to God. And you can just drop that into our uh, trumpet-shaped uh, offering plate. So does that sound good? Getting a lot of quiet faces looking at me. I'll go first. Uh, so let's pretend I've just come up. I'm just, oh, well, hi. hi, everybody. My name is Amos. I want to share a really wild story really quickly. i got 30 seconds before uh, Jen's going to pull me off. Um, but my mother-in-law fell down our stairs last Friday. Yeah, she's elderly, has diabetes, um, isn't in great health, and I, it was a really awful, I don't want to say traumatic, probably traumatic experience, Somehow, by what could only be the grace of God, she didn't 
fall down onto the stairs. She spun around and slid down the stairs and walked away with a mild concussion and, and a scraped elbow. And it could have been way, 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 way worse. And I want to thank God that publicly that, that it wasn't and that she drove home on her own accord and is, is doing okay. So that's how it works. Oh, Bob, here you go. I've uh, been working away in Latvia for three months, and I have three months more to go. I leave on Tuesday to go back. And I found that when I arrived there, I felt very much the encouragement and the prayers of God's people, and particularly those here and also those on Zoom. Your Friday night waves for the youth that got together, although we might feel like, oh, that's maybe not very much, maybe like a widow's mite that is put in. Uh, when I received that, it, it, it gladdened my heart and encouraged me. Uh, when people sent me prayer notes and I received other forms of encouragement, even when I was able to join on the weeks where I can by Zoom and took to heart what you encouraged us with and taught us with from God's word, it helped me uh, in that week. And I am so thankful for the encouragement that God can bring through people to you and uh, the way in which it's encouraged my heart and continue to be able to invite your prayers for myself and my teammate, Chaplain Sean. When two chaplains show up in the same place, it's kind of like two pastors being put beside each other in a church who have never worked together before. So you can imagine, it's not necessarily always that easy, but he has been great. I have been thankful for him. He's holding down the fort while I'm away and I'll go back and then he'll go on his mid-tour break and I'll do the same for him. And God has really worked in that situation and I am very, very thankful for answers to prayers that you have offered for me and ones that I offered before I went and the way in which God helped me. So if you, there's another person that wants to come up, feel free to be able to come and take the mic and share uh, what it is that God has done in your heart and life. Oh, here, I see someone's coming. That's great. I'm going to go back to when I was 10 years old, which was 78 years ago. I was out picking wild strawberries in my neighbor's uh, farmyard. I was born in Midland, in our number one Midland. And I came across a tent with four children and a set of parents in it, and they needed food. So I went running home to my mother. We always had a half acre of a garden. And I said, these people over there living in a tent, and she said, Joan, will you stop letting that imagination of yours run away with you? And my dad came in. Did I lose it? No. Uh, my dad came in. He said, I think you should listen to her. So he came over with me, and sure enough, there they were. And ever since then, the Lord has been sending me people. And I think I shared with you the ones that are there now. The problem has all been solved. The Lord has always answered it. And I think up till now, that's been like 40-some-odd people been through my life in my house. And he's always given me the answer. And a lot of times people don't agree with what I do, but I listen to the Lord anyway. So anyway, that's my story. And I'm still listening to the Lord. <laughs> there you go. Two great examples. Anybody else? Thank you for sharing, both of you. Uh, I'll invite the worship team to come back up. And if, if you feel like I do have something to say, but I don't want to say it publicly, 
we do have some notes and some pens here that you can just drop it in there and you can just write a note of thanksgiving or uh, uh, to God. Before, before we do that, let's just let's, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that um, even through your kind of searing criticism of, of the institution of religion and things that uh, deeply disturbed you and troubled you, that you always had your eye on, on the overlooked one, the one that kind of snuck through the cracks. We thank you that uh, your kingdom is actually one of the opposite. It's, 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 a king, it's an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that really doesn't make a lot of sense unless we see it through your eyes and see it through your Father's love. And so we thank you that uh, you do love us, that your love is actually quite, in some ways, irrational, that you love us when we're unlovable. You love us in spite of our failings, our flaws, that your mercy extends uh, beyond our, even com our comprehension and our understanding. And we thank you that we can give back to you because you've given to us out of an abundant, abundance of, of generosity because we have an abundance of relationship with you. And so, Jesus, I pray even now if, if there's folks here present who may not have a strong relationship that, or they don't know the status of the relationship with you, that they would just take a moment to reach out. And as Christy taught us this morning, it's just conversation, to have conversation with God the Father, to feel and know your love, and to begin that relationship anew. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for all the things that we can be grateful for, all the things we can be uh, thankful for in our lives. And we pray now that we would have uh, a blessed morning wherever we go, in your name. Amen.